morning. Again, happy Father's Day to all the, the dads and fathers and grandfathers. Do we have any great-grandfathers? If you're a great-grandfather, stand up. I know Gary. If you're a great-grandfather, stand up. All right. Do we have any great-great-grandfathers? Is Troy in here? Where's Troy? Troy, great-great-grandfather. That's awesome. Yeah. That is pretty sweet, isn't it? That's incredible. You're not 92, right, Troy? 92? You're 92? 92 years young. Amazing. How many of us guys hope to make great, great grandfather someday? Yeah. I think, I, I think. I'm not sure I want to live that long, but I think I do, right? Yeah. Anyway. Hey, um, it's good to be good to be back. Uh, last week, I think I was at Webster campus, and uh, things are going well out there. I know Pastor Martin's out there today. Pastor Brian's at the Windsor campus, and it has begun. We're a three-campus of English-speaking church, you know, plus we also have our Nepali campus, and, and we're launching our Fairmont uh, Hispanic campus. So just a lot, of, a lot of fun stuff going on in the life of Canaan. So, so glad that all of you are here. So what we're doing, and um, we're actually not having a special Father's Day message today. We're just going to continue in our normal series series because we're talking about a pretty heavy topic today. It's a controversial topic. How many of you have ever experienced being in a church where they started speaking in tongues? Okay. All right. Very good. Some of you might have grown up. How many of you grew up in a charismatic Pentecostal background? Anybody grew up in that background? A few of you. All right. Okay, cool. Um, How many of you, when you went to that, it kind of freaked you out? Raise your hand. Okay, yeah, all right, okay. So we're actually looking at 1 Corinthians 14 today. So if you have your Bible, uh, if you have it on your app, whatever, copy of, paper copy of, your, of God's Word, go ahead and open it up to 1 Corinthians 14. We're in, this, we're in this series, actually a series of series, going through the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, it's been great. We started it back in January, and we're about to wrap up. We did... We already did chapter 15, so we did that on Easter Sunday. Well, today we're at 14, next two, next two Sundays we'll finish up in chapter 16. But Corinthians, the, Corinth, the Corinthian church was a pretty messed up church, right? Now, if you're like me, I've been in, how many of you have been in a messed up church before? And we're not talking about Canaan, no, <laughs> right? No, you've been in a messed up church. Yeah, ch- churches have problems. If you ever think you found the perfect church, do not join it because you will mess it all up right? Because we're sinners, right? It's what church is. Church is a collection of God's people who he has saved by his sheer grace through the power of the gospel, which is God's word, the Jesus, the God in the flesh became one of us, lived a sinless life, and then voluntarily went to the cross for you and for me to sacrifice his purity, his righteousness, so we could have it, and took from us our sin. Our sin was big words, is imputed onto Jesus and his righteousness is imputed into us, which means that now when you place your faith and trust and confidence in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that God the Father looks at you and he sees the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't see all of our yuck. Isn't that great? And he doesn't hold it against us because Jesus already paid for that. That's the gospel. And Jesus, as he bore our sin, he died. He died in our place. He died the death we deserve. But then he rose on the third day, and he is alive today. That's why we're here celebrating him, amen? Yeah, we don't worship a dead God. We don't worship an idea. We don't worship, as, as Audrey prayed earlier, a deistic God, which means that God created everything, set everything in motion, and just completely hands off. No, God is 
intimately involved. God is working in your life right now, whether you realize it or not. And so the cool thing is, is as we live our life day in and day out, as believers, we get to see God work in our lives. We get to see him make a difference in our lives. We get to see him use us on mission trips and stuff like that where he's working in us and through us. It's really awesome. All that's part of being saved by Jesus Christ. Well, he saves us and brings us together in this, in this beautiful body of Christ called the church. But just because we're saved doesn't mean we're perfect. So churches have issues. And the Corinthian church was pretty messed up. They were divided over a lot of different issues. We've talked about that. Uh, the first series was all on the division in the, in the Corinthian church. Then we looked at all the sexual morality. We did a, we did a, a little mini series called Love, Love, Sex, and Dating and all that sort of thing. And, and then after that, we looked at just different laying down our rights for the sake of loving others. Well, now we're in this series where Paul is looking at the worship and the gathering. And so it was kind of looking at unpacking all of this. And so we're hitting this issue of tongues and the sign gifts today, because that's what Paul deals with, because a lot of people in the Corinthian church were looking at their spiritual gifts as a way to puff, be puffed up and be more arrogant than other people in the church. Like, well, I've got this gift and you don't, so nah, 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 you know, right? So I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, a, I'm better than you kind of a deal. And so Paul is really trying to set everything straight. And so... We're going to look at this text today. So before we, before we dive into the text, we're going to have a few precursor statements because um, this is obviously in the life of the global church. This is a controversial issue, right? And um, I'm just going to look at this. So I don't, I don't have control, Maggie, on my phone. So if you could, whoever's up there could take over or whatever, that'd be great. So uh, it's kind of a statement that we have here at Canaan about our doctrine, the thing, the truth that we believe, right? And so here's kind of our threefold statement. Number one is in our essential beliefs, we have and must have unity. Now, what we define as our essential beliefs, if you've been to our first step class, we lay out what our essential beliefs are. There's 10 of them, right? But those essential beliefs are that which is intimately connected to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot compromise on those. And it's things like we believe that God is a triune God, that, he is, that God reveals himself in three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, right? That the Bible is God's inerrant word to us. It's his revelation of who he is and what he's called us to do, who he's called us to be. You know, it's these sort of, of of doctrinal truths. These are essential beliefs. We must have unity there, right? But number two, in the non-essential beliefs, we have liberty, right? And so we're, we're, we're free to disagree on things. You know, last fall, we did this big series on, on eschatology. You know, as we were going through the book of Daniel, and then Sunday night, we had panel discussions, and we looked at the, the dispensational view. We looked at the, the uh, millennial view, the post-millennial view, the pre-millennial view. We looked at all those views, and within our church family, we have people that espouse all views, right? But that's okay. We can agree to disagree and still have unity based on the gospel and the mission of our church. Does that make sense? Well, today what we're looking at, well, number three statement, just to be thorough, is in all of our beliefs, we have love, right? So even if we disagree, we still love each other. Even if it means, and this has happened some, when people have come to join our church and we go through our, our essential beliefs and they disagree about something, you know, we, we lovingly say, well, it's probably best that you don't become a part of us because we can't compromise on this. But all that's done out of love, so they will find a church that fits their theology, even though we don't believe it's correct theology, right? But, 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 but also just a, just a loving statement so they know what's on the front end. So, but having said this, what we're looking at today, this issue of the sign gifts, this would fall into category number two. This is a non-essential 
right? Uh, we can disagree when we do as a global church. It's still called brothers and sisters in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, even though we not, may not see the same on this. So we're going to look at this passage today and looking at these sign gifts. And we're going to actually pick up here in chapter 14, verse 1, just to start us off. And uh, I'm just going to read the, the first five verses just to start things off. We're actually going to cover the whole chapter. We're actually going to go back and dip into chapter 13 just a little bit. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. And my clock says I have 28 minutes and 37 Six, 35 seconds to do it. So let's all stand and we'll, have a, uh, we'll read this passage together and we'll, we'll tackle this. All right, chapter 14, verse one. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And the one who speaks in a tongue holds, uh, builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Let's start right there. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for your sacrifice so that we might be saved by you and be born again and be a part of your kingdom, uh, not just now, but forever and ever. So Lord, we love you and praise you. God, I just ask that you would help us as we come to this, this controversial chapter. It's uh, been understood and interpreted in various ways. Just, I just give us clarity, give us unity, give us understanding. But God, help us to see to this big point today that we're, what we're to do is whatever we can to build up the church, not ourselves. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would be honored as we, uh, as we go through this text together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks. Go ahead and be seated. So let me give you a little perspective as we, before we just dive into the text here. A little perspective on different views on the sign gifts. And the sign gifts would be considered like speaking in tongues, the gift of healing, the gift of miracles, the gift of interpretation. Right, there's, there's different views on, on how these gifts operate or if they still operate today. So I'm going to go through these, these three kind of overarching views and then we'll unpack the passage and, you know, kind of go through that together. So the first view is what's called the cessationist position. You see the word ceased, Right? Uh, the word ceased is in there. And this, this position holds that the gifts of, of prophecy and tongues and healings, that they have ceased. That these gifts were special sign gifts in the, in the beginning of the New Testament age, before we had the word of God, before we had the New Testament canon, the scriptures. And that it was during the apostolic era. And so that the purpose of these miraculous sign gifts was for the Holy Spirit to authenticate the work and the message of the apostles to the church and those who are affiliated with the church. But once we had the New Testament canonized, you know, that, that, there was, that those gifts would cease because we no longer need those gifts because now we have the word of God. That is kind of a summary of the cessationist position. This is, this is the position I grew up being taught, okay? Um, and so if you, look at, if you go back to 1 Corinthians 13, so keep your Bible open, let's go back there. 1 Corinthians 13, verse eight, uh, we see Paul writes this. He says, love never ends. It just finishes the love section. You know, we looked at last week, love is patient, love is kind. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Verse nine. 
for we know in part and we prophesy in part. Verse 10, but when the perfect comes, if you, if you like to underline, highlight in your Bible, this is a key phrase, underline, circle, highlight, whatever that phrase right there, that's a big phrase. Whenever the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So, so this, this tradition of the cessationist says that the coming of perfection or completeness refers to the coming of the day when Scripture, the New Testament, was complete. So when John finished Revelation chapter 22 and the church recognized the different books that were supposed to, God intended to be a part of the New Testament, when that happened, that that would be the end or the cessation of the signed gifts. That's, that is the view there. Um, so that's, so let me just read one quote from a writer that's respected. It says, when scripture is completed, the church will have revelation thoroughly suited to her condition on earth. Our completed Bible is perfect in the sense that it is utterly sufficient revelation for all of our needs. Paul is saying, when the sufficient comes, the inadequate and partial will be done away. Tongues will vanish, knowledge and prophecies will cease at that time that the New Testament is finished. So when the perfect comes there in this view, the perfect refers to the word of God, the scriptures. All right. That's position number one. Position number two is the continuance position. Kind of the opposite. This sees that those sign gifts continue from New Testament day, even up till right now. And so there's a couple of sub views here. You first have the Pentecostal. Uh, If you go to the next slide there, the Pentecostal view or the the continuance position, uh, subset of it. This believes that these gifts are in full operation and every Christian should experience them, especially tongues. In fact, they go so far as to say in this Pentecostal view that if you have never spoken in tongues, and that that is a indication you have never been born again, that the, the manifestation of the genuine born again experience is that you speak in tongues, right? So that's, now that's the extreme continuous position. A little bit lighter on that is called the charismatic position, right? Charis- so Pentecostal is like a denomination of Pentecostal groups. Charismatic is more just a, a genre of evangelicalism. The charismatic view is a little bit lighter. They do hold to the continuance position uh, that these gifts continue to, to function and exist as part of the normal ministry of the church, but not every believer experiences all of them, Okay. So that's the charismatic view of the continuance position. And so you see here, if you go back to 1 Corinthians 13, the cessationist view, the continuance view, those two major interpretations has to do with how they understand the perfect. If the coming of the perfect in verse 10 refers to the finishing of the New Testament, the gifts have ceased. But if the coming of the perfect, verse 10, refers to the second coming of Christ, then the natural understanding of the text is that gifts will continue until Jesus comes, right? So that's the view. So you look at the different options. And, and Paul's going to continue on here in chapter 13, picking up in verse 11. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then, talking about when that perfect comes, face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. Well, that's interesting. So Paul kind of makes this argument. So he reads, he talks about when I was a child, I thought like a child, right? But he says, 
face to face. Let's go to that verse, verse 12, face to face. Now, which one makes more sense? To become face to face with Jesus, with the perfect through the word of God? Figuratively, spiritually, yes. But when Jesus comes, that'll be a literal face to face, right? It's a literal face to face. So I wanna make sure you, you see this, this, this contrast also of how in verse nine and 10, our knowledge, how it's imperfect, but when the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. Drop down to verse 12, notice the same contrast, second part of the verse, now I know in part, but then I will understand fully. So verse 12 clearly describes this coming of the perfect referred to in verse 10. And so the description of the coming of the perfect in verse 12 fits, in my opinion, more of the second coming than it does the completion of the New Testament. And so you take the two halves of the verse at one at a time. First it says, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. It's more likely that Paul is saying, now before the New Testament is written, we see in a mirror dimly, but when the New Testament is written, we will see face to face, or is it more likely, he is saying, now in this age we see in a mirror dimly, but when the Lord returns, we shall see face to face. In the Old Testament, there's a half a dozen references to seeing God face to face. We're not gonna get all those, but every time it was, you know, it's a pretty powerful moment. Um, so then there's this phrase, then I will understand fully. Last half of verse 12 uh, tells us this, right? Is that contrast before and after New Testament or before and after the second coming? It's hard for me to imagine Paul or any of us saying that after the New Testament was written, we now in this age understand everything fully. I, I'm just not there, right? I'm not quite there yet. Um, and even the apostle John, when he writes his gospel, he says, there's many other things that the Lord Jesus did that if everything was written down, all the books in the world could not contain them. But I've written these things that you may believe. What we have is sufficient, yes, but is it everything? You know, I'm just, so I'm just not convinced that. So all this, right, all this leads me to this third position, right, which is called the open but cautious, the modified position, and this position believes that the gifts have not ceased, but that most of the ways the gifts are being used today in so-called spirit-filled churches are, e are neither biblical nor helpful. They are sometimes, but not all the time. There's a lot of manipulation. There's a lot of psychological tricks involved in some of these places. Like you can turn on the TV and watch guys like Benny Hinn, right? Anybody ever done that? Yeah, let me encourage you to stop. <laughs> right? The, the, but, the, you know, all these faith healers and, you know, just the overly emotive thing that I just think it's out of whack. It doesn't fit. So the, my first experience with tongues was, I was a, a cadet at West Point. It was my junior year. We had some friends that we had made that lived down in Jer on the Jersey Shore. You know, that's the Jersey Shore. For those of you who don't speak New Jersey. And, uh, so they lived on the, on the shore, you know. So we went down there and they were, they were assembly of God. And so we went to church with them one Sunday and they didn't warn us. We had, we had no background with this, right? So we go in and we're in the worship service and all of a sudden this, this lady stands up and she starts speaking something, right? I'm like, hey, what language is she speaking? Everybody around like, well, we don't know, she's speaking in tongues. Like, what does that mean? You know, I, I didn't know anything, right? I was clueless. It was kind of weird. But anyway, she started speaking in tongues and then someone else started speaking in tongues. She started going on around me. So that's what launched my curiosity. I was like, what? is this, right? And so began a journey of, of just trying to look into it. You know, and I was, I'd grown up in church, but I was still kind of a novice in scripture. So this was a pretty long journey. So anyway, I'll, I'll tell you more of my journey as we get to it. But, but knowing those three positions, right? Where I kind of lean is this third modified view. Um, I understand the cessationist view, but I understand the continuance view, but 
the deal is for me, I just think it's faked a lot. I think it's easily manipulated. And you'll hear my story in a minute, and I'll explain why. But, but let's now dive into the text of what Paul teaches us. So first thing, number one in your notes, you read these first few verses. Number one, that prophecy or prophesying is to be more desired than the gift of tongues, right? Paul's very clear on that. He's very clear. And so let's do a little comparison here. So first for tongues. Here's some things Paul teaches us about tongues just in these first, um, actually 12 verses. We didn't read all of them, but first, first things that he says. First, tongues are to, be, are to God, not to mankind, right? Tongues are directed from the person to God, not to one another. Tongues are spoken to God, not to people. And so, you know, Wayne Grudem uses this. Wayne Grudem's a systematic theological writer. He writes a lot of our textbooks we use in seminaries in the Baptist tradition. He says this, a working definition of tongues is a form of prayer and praise you express to God in a language you do not understand. That's Wayne Grudem's explanation. Just from this phrase, they're to God, not to man. So tongues are to God, not to mankind. They are mysteries in the spirit, not understood by mankind. As that lady stood up and spoke, I had no idea what she was saying. And according to this text, and according to her, I'm sure, neither did she. She did not understand what she was speaking, right? It was simply to God. Interesting. Third, they only build up, tongues only build up the person speaking. They do not build up the church, which is the next one, does not benefit the church. And then verse 13, which going down there, they must be interpreted. See, even in my experience in that one, in that very first time, there was no interpretation given. Nobody knew what she was saying. I mean, she could have been saying, we're having chicken noodle soup for lunch, and, you know, and no one would have known the difference, right? There was no check and balance there. That's why it's, that's why it's dangerous. And we'll get to the big thought of that here in just a little bit. Then you go to prophecy, and prophecy is the fourth telling of the truth, right? It's not always future-oriented. It can be now, like, like a, a lot of consider preaching today is forth telling. The prophetic gift is the gift of some understanding, is to be able to, to forth tell the truth in a way that stirs you to action, right? Um, and, you know, some, some preachers are good at teaching. I think I'm more of a teacher type, but some preachers are good at foretelling truth that makes you really convicted and like, oh, you stirs your heart to action. I got to do something about this, right? That's kind of foretelling the truth. But here, Paul talks about prophecy is, first it speaks to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. It's very beneficial. Builds up the church, brings revelation, knowledge, and teaching, and it is preferred over tongues in the gathering. Verse, 13, uh, verse 19 tells us that. And then Paul gives several examples from uh, just life to show the importance of interpretation needed for a tongue, for there to be understanding. He talks about a flute or a harp. You know, if a flute or harp, or we get, you know, Josh up here back on the keyboard, he played, the, he played one note and just held that note the whole time. Just, just imagine that. Bing. And just hold the whole song. There's no melody. Well, how can there be a song with no melody, right? Or what if he plays the key, the, 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 the note C and holds it, but then Nathan, the band, they're playing in the key of A. It's gonna sound horrible, right? Well, that's kind of the, the, the illustration Paul gives it with music. There's gotta be the variety. There's gotta be the understanding of everything moving and flowing. So if there's no interpretation, it's like somebody just holds that C note down the whole time, right? 
And then he talks about a bugle in the army might be a good example, you know. There's no variation in the bugle. You don't know how to retreat or how to charge because the, it's the melody that dictates that. So, and, and then he gives the example of, the other langu- of actual languages. If there's no change in the language and understanding, we can't communicate with each other. So that's just some, Paul talks, about, Paul talks about some of these things. Well, then that leads us to some questions to consider. Number two, questions to consider about tongues, verses 13 through 25. First, are there different kinds of tongues? Are there different kinds? So to different views, one, are tongues actually known languages? I would say yes, because you go to Acts chapter two. The day the Holy Spirit came and filled the believers on Pentecost, filled them, flaming you know, tongues on, above their head, but then they started speaking, the Bible says, in other tongues. And that Greek word for tongue is glossa, right? It's the same word in Acts two as it is in 1 Corinthians 14, Glossa, and then to speak tongues is glossalia, right? Which is two words put together, glossa and laline, which is to speak in another language or another tongue. The word tongue can be interpreted language, can be just left as tongues, right? So it's the same word. So in Acts 2, Holy Spirit fills the believers. They start preaching the gospel. And there, Luke, who writes the book of Acts, he's very careful to capture that, hey, there's people from all over the world here. There's, you know, Parthenians, there's, I mean, it just names all these different places that people are from, and they're amazed because they hear the apostles preaching in their own language. It was a language that they knew. So those were known languages in Acts chapter 2. Another understanding could be number two is unknown languages, right? Meaning, that the person who's speaking that language, it's an actual language, but it's not a language they know. So it's like, um, you know, Steve, have you ever taken German? Okay, that doesn't work. Um, Have you ever taken Swahili? Nine, that's German for no. All right. So, können Sie sprechen Sie Swahili? That's how you just ask in German. I digress. So, So it'd be like Steve getting up here and giving a lecture in Swahili even though he doesn't know Swahili. That would be the unknown language, right? That's going on there. It's a real language, it's an actual language. It's known by someone, just not by the person who is speaking that language. So some would see the gift of tongue is that. It's a supernatural moment where God, through the Holy Spirit, gifts you to speak a language you don't know in order to communicate with someone, especially who's not a believer, to hear the gospel. That's what we saw in Acts chapter two, perhaps. The third, is just kind of the Pentecostal charismatic view, and that is that these are ecstatic utterances. This is not an actual language. It's your spirit, right, praying to God through the Holy Spirit in a language that doesn't exist among men. Um, it, it's, it's not known. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 13, 1, it's kind of a proof text for this that's used. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, right, but have not love, I am a noisy gong. So here, kind of the, the argument is, see, there is, a, there is a, a heavenly language that might not be anything like human language that when you're speaking or praying in a tongue, right, it's that ecstatic utterance. Hmm. So which one did Paul have in mind here in 1 Corinthians 14? That's the question. I believe I lean toward the unknown languages. Seems to be uh, where there's a separation. If you like, like go to look at verse 14. Boy, time is moving quickly. So verse 14, <clears throat> he says, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, 
but my mind is unfruitful. What does Paul mean there? He means if my spirit prays, my mind is not understanding what I'm praying. My mind's not fruitful. There's not, there's no human edification personally going on in my mind, although my spirit's being edified. It's kind of what, what he's saying there. So it seems this, this separation of mind and spirit here. So anyway, I remember when I tell my story. So when I was, I was studying this, this is years later, um, Tara and I had planted a church in Nashville and we had, Tara has this aunt and um, her aunt is Pentecostal. She's, she's like the extreme one, right? And she was so excited that Tara and I, we got out of the army, we were in ministry, planting a church. She made it her mission to make sure that we were gonna get baptized with the Holy Spirit and experience the supernatural gifts, right? That was her mission. So she had this pastor who, of course, had been a Southern Baptist pastor and had received this miraculous gift and started speaking in tongues and all that. And, and to his credit and his integrity, he resigned from his church because he knew that his church was not in line with what he was practicing. So he left and started a, a new church uh, in, in another town, not too far away. And Tara's aunt became a member of that church, et cetera. Well, he had, wrote a, had written a book on his experience called I Found the Secret. And so she sent me a copy of his book. And so, you know, here was my attitude. I really think this should be our attitude. My attitude was, hey, if, if this is true, then I need to pursue it. If it's not true, I need to avoid it like the plague. Amen? And, you know, in, in, in my formation days, even as a, a church planter pastor, I was still, we were, believe it, pa pastors don't have all the answers. Shocking, I know. But we're all growing ourselves, right? We're still in this process of learning and growing ourselves. And so I was like, well, you know what? If there's, if there's this whole aspect of my relationship with Jesus that I'm missing out on, man, I want that, right? So that was my attitude. I was like, if this is real, I don't care what people say. I want to do what the Word of God says, right? So I read the book with what I thought, think still to this day, is an open mind. So I read the book. And he made some pretty good exegetical arguments, so I called him. So I called this guy. His name's Todd. I won't give you his last name, but I called Todd. And I said, hey, Pastor Todd, my name is Daniel. He said, oh, Daniel, man, we've been praying for you. I'm like, oh, boy. <laughs> right? So anyway, so he invited Tara and I. This time, our two oldest daughters, Sydney and Rochelle. Sydney was four. Rochelle was two. He invited, us to, he invited us to come down to Georgia and come talk with him, pray with him. And he was convinced, you know, that they would lay hands on us and we'd, lives would change, right? So we go down there. We go down there, and I remember, um, of course, you know, if you ever have kids, traveling is not ever easy nor simple, right? So whatever happened, the, the stomach bug hit our kids. So Tara's confined to the hotel room with two sick little girls, and I'm going off to meet with Pastor Todd. So I go meet with Pastor Todd, and he's very gracious. He's a, he's a very kind, godly man. So we start talking about some of the things he'd written about and I asked some questions and he had some pretty good answers. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't like all in convinced he was right, but I wasn't all in convinced he was wrong. I was just asking for God to just show me the truth. And you know, Lord, if there's just this whole aspect of knowing you I don't have, I, I want that. So Todd brought in all of his staff, by the way, who all were former Southern Baptist ministers, right? Worship guy, youth guy, all that, right? So all in there. And they, they sat me in the middle of, their, of this kind of conference room area and they start walking around me and they're praying over me, right? And they're praying in tongues. Now, I remember listening and some of them 
Well, Pastor Todd sounded like an actual language. I'll give him the credit. It sounded like an actual language. I didn't know what he was saying, but it sounded like a language. The rest of them were, was using just repetitive phrases. Like, I remember the worship guy. With all those worship guys. You got to watch those worship guys, right? Anyway. This morning he was writing, I'll never forget what he was saying, ricky-ticky-ticky, ricky-ticky-ticky, over and over again. And, and, and I kept thinking this right here. Go to the next slide. <laughs> I was in my mind, like, ricky-ticky-tabby, what, what's he got to do with this, right? But ricky-ticky-ticky. So, so on the one hand, you know, I think Todd, Todd was, man, he was, it was an actual language, but these other guys, you know, ricky-ticky, I don't think so, you know, so... Nothing happened, you know. I was kind of disappointed because I was, man, I, you know, I, was, I was ready to have that experience if it was real, but nothing happened, you know. And I was like, I thanked them, and they were all encouraging, and, you know, they tried to say, well, we heard you make one little, uh, it's whatever, and, <laughs> and they were trying to coach me. And, yeah, I don't know. It was just kind of strange. It wasn't, if that was real, I was, I was let down. I, but, you know, anyway, so I left that room, that office, not completely a cessationist, but at the same time, because Todd might be the real deal, but those other guys, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not judging them, but at that moment, it didn't feel real or seem real what they were doing, right? You can go to the next slide. We can get, yeah, we can get the mongoose off of there. All right. So uh, it's kind of disillusioned, kind of, I kind of left it for a while, you know, kind of left the that was, just left that study off to the side. I didn't really come to a solid answer. And to be honest with you, I'm just still in the modified answer right now. I'm, I'm not gonna say that everyone who practices that is wrong. I'm not dare gonna say that because, I mean, I just, I'm not a cessationist, biblically nor practically at the same time. I'm just immediately skeptical of those that say they do because it's just so faked and so manipulated and it's been so divisive in, in the body of Christ and it's not supposed to be. And that's the whole purpose Paul's writing this. So what is the purpose of tongues then? What does Paul tell us here? Go to the next um, slide. It's to build up oneself, right? It, it's edifying. Paul, Paul does talk about the, the edifying of the one person who is speaking the tongue. Also, he says it's a sign to unbelievers. If you go on down to chapter 14, verse 20, 21, it says, brothers, don't be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, um, but in your thinking be mature in the law it is written by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people and even they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So thus tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. So here he quotes Isaiah chapter 28, which is an interesting verse. It says, um, for by people of strange lips with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people, verse 12 to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this, this, and this is repose, yet they would not hear. So this was, an, this was when God was telling him, I'm gonna bring a, a foreign nation, which would end up being Assyria, to judge you because you don't listen. So tongues here was part of God's judgment, which was interesting that Paul uses that here. So it's a, it was for the unbelievers. But here, that's what tongues are for, for a sign for the unbelievers. And we kind of see that in Acts chapter two, where the gift of tongues of the apostles for the benefit of those in different tongues hearing the gospel. Go ahead, next, next slide. So which leads us to the big thought. Usually we start with the big thought. Today we're kind of bringing it toward the end. The big thought, here's what Paul's big point is. Pursue the gifts that serve to build up the body of Christ, right? 
That's the goal. The goal of our gathering, and this, this transcends just the sign gift. When you come to the gathering, what is your purpose? And this, this is gonna expose how innately selfish we can be, you know? We can come to the service and think, man, I hope, hope God's got a good word for me today, you know? Man, I hope they sing songs I like. Um, I hope someone's kind to me today. I hope if we do the Lord's Supper, we go back to the old crackers and not the styrofoam ones, right? <laughs> or man, I hope they actually have donuts this morning, you know? Hope the coffee's the Papua New Guinea because that's my favorite coffee, right? You know, we, we think like that. But what if, just what if, what if on Sunday morning when you woke up, before you got out of bed, before you got your cup of coffee, your prayer was, Lord, I pray today you use me at the gathering to build someone else up, to encourage someone, to be a friend to someone, to show hospitality to our guests. Help, help me, Lord, to serve you and be used by you this morning to build up the church. What, was, what if that was all of our prayers on Sunday morning before we got here? Don't you think this would be a radically different situation? Now again, we got a lot of selfless serving people here, right? So this isn't me complaining. I'm just saying, just think of that higher standard though. Just think of all of us. You know, we probably got, you know, 350, 400 people in here. What if all of us were like, Lord, use me today to bless someone else. What if we made the gathering not about us? Which by the way, we say this all the time, don't we? It's not about you, right? It's all about God. What if, what if we prayed that every Sunday morning before we came in? But see, that's where the Corinthian church was all messing up. They were focused on the gifts they had. They were focused on themselves, not building up the body. And so, that was so detrimental. Third, and we're out of time, so we're just gonna cover this quickly. The church is edified through an orderly gathering. So this last part of chapter 14, he kind of shifts gears. He gets it kind of moves away from the gifts specifically. It just goes to the overall orderliness that the gathering is supposed to follow because the Corinthian church was quite chaotic, right? And so um, it says, what then brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, let all things be done for building up. There's our big thought. If any speaks a tongue, there should be only two or at most three, each in turn, and let someone interpret. If there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophesy or prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent for you can all prophesy one by one. Now we accomplish this in multiple ways. Small group time at nine o'clock and big group time as well. So put all that together and we, we have a lot of this that goes on here. And then he's gonna get into this last section. Um, and the section he deals with women in the church. It just sounds shocking, right? Um, and we're gonna spend more time in this. The next series we're doing is a series called What Does the Bible Say About dot, dot, dot. So we're gonna deal with some topics that the Bible deals with. And one of these will be the role of women in ministry, right? That's a hot topic. I don't know if you follow what's going on in Southern Baptist Convention, right? But the big issue is can women be pastors? That's been a, a big issue, right? And, and we believe very convictionally, the Bible says that, on, that the role of pastors reserved for men. It's not because we're misogynistic or chauvinistic or whatever. We just because the Bible says things like this. And so we're gonna unpack that. But just briefly, let me just read what Paul says here. 
Uh, it says, in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. Now, the context here is prophesying or preaching, right? So the, this isn't just women can't say anything in church, so women, shh. no, it's not, it's not what Paul's saying at all. He's saying, what, doing what I'm doing right here, that women are not to do this right here in a mixed gathering. That's, that's kind of the context. But we'll, we'll deal more with this later. But they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission. The law also says, if anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husband at home for a shameful woman to speak in church. Again, to prophesy. So we're gonna deal with that. That's a heavy subject, and I'm already out of time. And that's, we wanna go deeply in that. But just to give you another text that shows this is repeated numerous times in scripture, you have 1 Timothy chapter two. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Different letter, same message. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first in Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman. So the reason we hold to this, because we see that this issue was not a cultural issue. It was based on creation, and that hasn't changed, right? So, again, when we get there here in a few weeks, we'll really unpack this, why we believe this way why, and what the Scripture says about this. This is, a, this is a heavy topic, you know. Because on one hand, we love our ladies, and God, and you're equal in the, size, in the sight of God, right? And, you know, Galatians 3 talks about the equality of, of male, female, Jew, Greek, slave, free. There's no, there's, there's no differentiation of those in the kingdom of God. That we're all equal now as a God. We're equally valuable, right? But when it comes to roles and responsibilities, there's just a few, very few differences. And this is the major one, right? Is that it seems like God says in scripture that only men are to be pastors and elders. Um, and so we're going to unpack that weeks to come because we also although we believe that we also believe that ladies you are vital to the ministry period you know that the church does not exist without the ministry of women right amen and so trying to how do we how do we navigate and balance that where there's this one role you can't do by scripture but so what does that mean you are to do and can do right and so we're gonna we're gonna look at that and try to have a very biblical view of the complementarian roles of men and women in the church together. So we'll look at that in a couple of weeks. But I want to end on this. And this is how Paul ends this chapter. Last two verses. He says, So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. And I love what he says, earnestly desire to prophesy, right? Now there's a lot of ways we preach and tell the gospel. I mean, I do it here. Your small group leaders do it in their connection groups. But you can also do it when you're at work, in your neighborhood, when you're about to go to lunch. If you're going to lunch and there's a waiter or a waitress, you know, you might have the opportunity to talk about the gospel, talk about Jesus. And just a simple way, we've heard a lot of success here doing this, is just simply ask your waiter or waitress, hey, we're getting ready to pray. Is there a way I can pray for you, right? Simple question. You never know how the Lord's gonna use that. I think it was Mike had a great testimony about him and Valerie just having dinner one night at some restaurant around here and asked that question and it led into a gospel conversation and the young lady trusting in Christ. I mean, that's, that's, that's what we should be desiring to do. Because folks, Jesus changes our lives, amen? I mean, that's why this team's here from Mount Zion to bring the life-changing message of Jesus to St. Louis. And St. Louis, do we need to hear the life-changing message of Jesus? Absolutely. So thank you all for being missionaries in our city. We are to do that every day. When we go to work, 
I know you're not in school right now, but as you enjoy summer activities for the teenagers, college students, you know, when you're in the neighborhoods, we're, we're on mission. We should desire that. And we do desire that. We should desire it more and more. So where are you at in your journey with Jesus? You know, are you, uh, here Paul talked about unbelievers and believers. Are you a believer yet? Have you come that moment where you've embraced that what Jesus did for you on the cross and trusted him, surrendered your life to him as Lord and King? If not, great time to do that right here. If you're a believer, are you living your life to build up the church? Are you, are you living selflessly? Or is your attitude when you come to worship more selfish? You're looking for what you want and what you desire and all these sort of things instead of, God, how can you use me today? And you know, if, you're, if you wanna serve the Lord more, hey, we've got plenty of opportunities. We've got a great children's ministry that can always use more great volunteers. Uh, we've got more hospitality opportunities because we want our guests to always feel welcome. Great opportunities to serve. So what's your, what's your next step? How can you go more in for Jesus? He's done so much for us. Let's stand and pray together. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you that not only do you save us and rescue us from an eternity of condemnation and, and hell, but you, you also give us forgiveness you give us life, you give us purpose, you give us joy, a new life and an everlasting life. So Lord, I just pray, first of all, if there's anyone here or watching online that's never trusted in you, Jesus, that right here, this moment would be that moment they place their faith and trust and confidence in you. And God, then just help them come and just chat with one of our prayer counselors and God, just begin an amazing eternity-long journey with you. God, we also pray for those here who are believers, who have had that moment in time where they trusted you, Jesus, their Lord and Savior. But, but God, we all, all have next steps. And maybe for some, Lord, that next step is joining this church family. Maybe for others, it's to begin serving. Maybe for some, it's to serve more in a different role, different capacity. God, maybe for some, it's for us to repent that we come to church selfishly, looking at what can I get from this service, from the gathering, instead of how can I serve and contribute and give? How can I be a part of building others up? How can I be an encouragement? How can I be a blessing? So Lord, I just pray that you would just help us, whatever that next step is for each and every single one of us, that we would, in faith, take that next step for your glory as you continue to change each of us. So we just want to give this time to you. Pray you're honored in how we respond. And uh, Lord, it's all about you. Love you in Jesus' name. Amen.